Hi, I'm Jeremy Ullman, and this is Abstract, a podcast where I'll be interviewing graduate students to learn about their research in a way that makes it accessible, bringing into the discussion aspects that are fun but challenging, covering a day in the life, and also just throwing around cool theories and groundbreaking findings that they've come across in their readings. My goal here is to tap into the wealth of information swirling around graduate students' minds, culminating from months to even years of research and reading. We're going to harness that knowledge together, one episode at a time. Hello, and welcome to the show. Before we hop into things, here's a quick list of the kind of topics you can expect to hear about on today's episode. So we discuss mental health, depression, and anxiety, change and uncertainty across graduation and through other life transitions. We also talk about aspects of personality and how those feed into mindset and the importance of mindset. This, of course, and so much more on today's episode of Abstract, so let's get into it. Dr. Sarah Newcomb Anjo is a clinical psychologist at the Nova Scotia Health Authority in Halifax. She completed her PhD in clinical psychology at Concordia University in the summer of this year, 2020. While in graduate school, she researched risk and protective factors for mental health problems in young adults using methodology that looks at what she calls heterogeneity in trajectories of mental health. Her doctoral research was funded by Shirk Can Canada. Her doctoral research was funded by a Shirk Canada graduate scholarship. Although now in a clinical role, her current research interests include understanding aspects of veteran and members of the armed forces mental health. She's also interested in knowledge translation and improving the quality and access to mental health treatment in our public healthcare systems. In her spare time, she enjoys socializing, traveling, cooking, spending time outdoors, and trying new things. This is Sarah's first guest appearance on the podcast, so here's to trying new things. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. How's it going? Hi, thank you so much. I'm doing well. Thank you. Nice. This is exciting, as always. I think I always start episodes by saying this is exciting because I truly feel excited every time I get to sit across from a bright mind who's engaging with the future of science. So this is great. And as, as someone who has a background in psychology as well, this is doubly exciting. I'm excited as well. <laughs> nice. So first things first, I'd just like you to give us a quick rundown of your academic background, where you began your uh, university academic career, and maybe if there's anything along the way that kind of changed your path, I'd love to hear how that evolved. Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm originally from Southern Ontario and I went to University of Guelph for my Bachelor of Arts in Psychology. Mm -hmm. And I always, I've always really enjoyed psychology. I always kind of had my eye on potentially a, a clinical psychology career, although I was very open to potential deviations in that plan. And in undergrad, I volunteered in a ton of different labs. I was quite a keener and kind of filled a lot of my spare time with research and volunteering in labs. And I worked with a lot of children, so a lot of early developmental labs. So the program at Guelph is, focuses mostly on earlier periods of the life course. And I realized I really was more interested in adolescence, if not um, later on, maybe sort of early adulthood. I found a ton of research on um, our early developmental experiences, which is extremely important and valuable. But I sometimes felt like the 20s were somewhat of a neglected age group. Maybe I was also relating to that being in my 20s as well at the time. So um, 20s, I, you would consider then adolescent. I guess when you mentioned adolescent, I immediately thought like teens. 
Yeah, no, so I, I worked in a lab looking at adolescence, but depending, it's sort of interesting. In the research field, I feel like now I look at emerging adulthood, which is even 18 to 29, believe it or not. Um, okay. But depending on where you are in an academic sphere, some people will kind of group that in with adolescence or like up to 25 might be adolescence. And I can I can speak to why emerging adulthood is maybe different, but I guess it sowed the seeds of looking at, um, let's just say, late teens, early 20s. And then as I moved on in research, it became late 20s as well. <laughs> so yeah, that, that prompted me to apply to grad school uh, in clinical psychology. And I got in um, and I decided to move to Concordia, move to Montreal to work with my supervisor, Erin Barker. And she researches young adulthood, essentially similar to, to my intro, sort of risk and protective factors for well-being and achievement and self-regulation in young adulthood. And miraculously, somehow I made it through the program and I graduated <laughs> very recently. I think actually my I, the online convocation is within a few weeks. So that Oh, was- very exciting. Okay. Was there any point in your PhD where you didn't think you'd make it? Um, I, no. I mean, I think I always kind of had faith that I would get through, but it's definitely a challenging program. I'd say the first two years or so um, are very course-heavy very um, competitive, you know, you're kind of doing all sorts of things at once. And I mean, for myself as well, as well, it was a challenge. I moved to a new city, kind of had to restart, leave all my old friends, make new friends. You know, I was young and just kind of figuring out my place in the world. So that was definitely challenging, but I feel lucky to say I kind of I felt like once I got the ball rolling, it became clear that it was a good fit for me and that I was going to kind of plug along. Although there were definitely moments where <laughs> sometimes I contemplated, I just want to be a real estate agent. <laughs> Um, okay. Just like a one-year, one-year certificate, not even like a, like a four-month certificate, and you can go sell houses. Yeah, exactly. And I, I love like I love homes and decor and stuff. And I was like, that just sounds so great right now. But nevertheless, I like I'm stubborn and kind of if I start something, I want to finish it. So this is, this is a big thing to be stubborn about. But I'm glad <laughs> that it worked out for you. Yeah, it's a good, I guess, a good demonstration of my stubbornness, maybe. <laughs> sure. Well, this is this is awesome. I'm I'm glad that I'm catching you kind of just after you finish your graduate study. So just for the listener, as mentioned in the intro, uh, Sarah's not actually currently doing very much research. She is really in a clinical role, but we're still going to dive in and talk a bit about her dissertation. So one of the first things that was mentioned here is this idea of risk and protective factors for mental health. So those are kind of maybe big words here. Let's let's try and break those down. What does that really mean, risk and protective factors for mental health? Yeah, so that's sort of just a research term, and it kind of hails from a theory or a sort of set of theories that are within a developmental psychopathology framework. So the idea is aspects of our life, and that's really broadly defined that either put one at an increased risk for a mental health problem or can be protective kind of against developing a mental health problem. So let's just say a very classic risk factor would be stress. Let's just say we know that people's mental health in general kind of deteriorates when we're under stress, but a protective aspect might be friends. So if you have friends that you can lean on when you're stressed, then you're less likely to feel unwell. And if you have friends that make you stressed... It's true. Depending on the friend, they could be a risk factor or a protective factor. Right? Sure. Yes. <laughs> uh, feel free to check out episode uh, 12 with Ryan Person when we talk about relationship dynamics and how yeah. maybe maybe you need new friends. It's true. Uh, yeah, I don't mean to oversimplify. I mean, I am oversimplifying. There are nuances within there for sure. 
Can we get maybe one more example just to really drive this point home of, of a risk and a protective factor? Yeah. So, so something that's been looked at a lot, let's say in the young adult slash student population, we know a risk factor for, let's say, depressive symptoms is financial stress. So for young students, let's say, that are really struggling to make ends meet and pay the bills, it tends to correlate, let's say, with being more likely to be depressed. Um, a protective aspect, let's say, might be feeling engaged in your community. So let's say someone who's working, you know, does school, but also feels like they have a good neighborhood to return to. They have a sort of a home base, people that they feel support them and are around them. I suppose that's similar to the social support example, but it's a really well-established kind of protective factor that if you're going to be at risk for depressive symptoms, if you have this sense of community, it's less likely that you may develop those depressive symptoms. Right. So I, I like actually that instead of giving different examples, you gave more specific examples of stress <laughs> and like social dynamics, which I appreciate. Stress is just this crazy concept that I feel has come into the discussion in maybe the last 10 years, but was not really addressed yeah. very much. I don't really remember much discourse on, uh, on stress back in high school, even though it was still very much present. Yes. Now, especially going through your undergraduate degree, and I, I did a year of... Uh, graduate degree as well. And stress is just everywhere. Everyone's talking about it and everyone's experiencing it. Yeah. And I should add the caveat that, I mean, I, I totally agree, certainly in the media and, and you know, with COVID and everything, it's sort of this idea that stress is horrible and we must avoid it. And it is in some contexts, definitely a risk factor, but there is good stress too. And it's not to say that we should live a stress-free life. I mean, that I don't know what that life would look like, but just certain types of stress, I suppose, or at certain degrees or intensities can set us over the edge, I think. Have you come across any research that discusses how to wrangle your stress or how to identify what the good stresses are? Because I, I, I truly think this is an important note to touch on. I think stress is good. Yeah. And like everything, moderation is key. I, I, yeah, I think I can't speak to like specific research, but I would certainly agree with your statement, like moderation. You know, we, we know that stress can be motivating in some degree. And there's actually some research coming out of our lab by my supervisor that shows that students, for example, that have bouts of low mood, so at times are feeling maybe a little more crunched or stressed, actually accelerate in their grades. So they tend to kind of, you know, put the pedal to the metal and they're like, okay, I'm going to, it kind of lights a fire under their butt to get going. Um, or that's what we assume is going on in that context. Yeah. So that's, that's a good thing. But for the wrong person at the wrong time with a wrong type of stress and at a certain intensity, um, it can be problematic, but it's all it's all relative and all variable for sure. I don't think it should be. We should blanket say like stress is bad, for example. For sure. Okay, I'm glad that we just addressed that. And you said that you've worked with like young adults, maybe between the ages of early teens to also late twenties. What kind of stress patterns do you see across these groups? Does it increase over time generally? Well, so what I look at is correlates of mental health. So depressive symptoms and anxiety sure. symptoms, let's say. And some people might call those stress, but the way I guess I think of it sometimes like stress might relate to those symptoms. Um, certainly you can use the terms interchangeably. So that's part of what my dissertation looked at actually is, you know, patterns of internalizing symptoms. So that means um, either depressive symptoms or anxiety symptoms for the purpose of my dissertation over time across graduation from one's undergraduate degree. 
And what we find, and typically across all the literature that looks at young people's mental health over time, is on whole, on average, people don't show much change or do pretty well. You know, there's about 60% of my sample had sort of low depressive symptoms or low to moderate, like kind of adaptive levels, not terribly anxious, and kind of navigated that transition out of their undergrad relatively swimmingly, um, no strange deviations. But we do see that there's often a group of people, and in terms of proportion, it varies, but for the purpose of my dissertation, I found about 30% of the sample who come become at risk for mental health problems, and specifically across graduation transition. So I sort of saw this pattern where folks were doing relatively well in undergrad, and then over time, things got worse. And then on the flip side, there was a nice, what I call kind of a resilient trajectory. There are folks, and you, you might see this across different transitions in the life course, where no matter what's sort of happening at that period of life, they bounce back. Or maybe they're having a tough time in undergrad is what I found. These folks, kind of their, their symptoms were high in undergrad, but they kind of calmed down as they transitioned out of their, their uh, undergraduate degree. So that's kind of like the what in terms of the trajectory. But do we know why it is that after undergraduate degree, people just start to kind of go in these opposite directions? Yeah, exactly. So that's like the main thrust, I think, of my dissertation. So first analysis is kind of figuring out, you know, are there different trajectories over time? And as there are that I've just described to you, and then it's the why. So for me, it was really important to consider all sorts of different risk and protective factors or all sorts of factors, let's just say, that are the why. Um, A lot of research tends to look at this predicts this or X relates to Y. This is why this happens. But for me, that seemed kind of kind of narrow um, and in line with different theories that I, I support in my dissertation or I cite in my dissertation, it's important to consider aspects of, of one's life across different domains. So I looked at sort of one's developmental history, so aspects that we know are across literature detrimental for mental health, for example, early stress as a child, financial stress growing up. I looked at contextual factors, so graduation contextual factors, like were these people not getting jobs, were they not making money, were they moving out of their family of origin and so forth. And I also looked at aspects within the individual, so personality, so personality traits. So is one tending to be optimistic? Is one tending to be what I what we call gritty or having grit, which is sort of a steadfast commitment to goals, sort of persistence, I guess is another word for it. And also neuroticism, which is a tendency to experience kind of volatility in, in one's negative moods, kind of being moody, I suppose. And what I found is, so I looked at all these different aspects and I wanted to know, okay, what, what, what packs a punch here? What's most important across this transition? And interestingly, none of the graduation contextual factors made a difference. So whether a young person got a job, whether they were, you know, doing really well after graduation financially or not, it didn't differ. What it really came down to were were aspects of one's personality or mindset. And, you know, I I can go into this. Yeah. So it's really, it's not really, and I should say like, the bulk of our sample, they identified that they had challenges graduating. Like it's not an easy part of one's life, but it's not really about like what about it was challenging. It was more about how they perceived those challenges that contributed to a more adaptive well-being or mental health or a less adaptive mental health. So really about that mindset piece. And now an excerpt from Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, as has become customary for the first break of each episode. This is passage seven from book two. Do external things distract you? Then make time for yourself to learn something worthwhile. Stop letting yourself be pulled in all directions. 
but make sure you guard against the other kind of confusion. People who labor all their lives but have no purpose to direct every thought and impulse toward are wasting their time, even when hard at work. I hope that you, yes, you, find meaning and purpose in what you do. And now back to the episode. I love that the whole crux of your research, like the, the whole end, end result is that mindset is really important and there aren't really these, these like real world physically instantiated realities that you can point to that say this is like do this or change that and it's going to make things good. Two episodes ago, I started reading uh, little excerpts from Marcus Aurelius's meditations during our breaks. We got two breaks per episode. And Marcus Aurelius was a Stoic philosopher over 2,000 years ago. And he basically had a journal that has now been translated into tons of languages and it's been widely distributed. I just finished reading it. And there's basically a ton of insight there where he's essentially talking to himself via this journal and it's all about mindset. Yeah. All about mindset. So, you know, even before he didn't, he didn't do a PhD dissertation, he just observed the world. He's a very inquisitive person and he was very in tune with himself and his environment. And he came to these realizations of mindset is key. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, it's not a new concept, like, and as you pointed out, but I think it's really nice to actually have some data to support it, at least in this niche context of, of my sample. But Totally. I mean, it's at the foundation of a lot of my clinical work, for example, the, the sort of therapies that I would work with with clinical populations. It does all boil down to mindset in many ways. When you work with these young populations and you presumably tell them that mindset is key, what's their reaction? Are they excited about the prospect of changing their outlook or are they worried that there isn't some panacea, some pill they can take? Yeah. I mean, certainly in a clinical context, I, I would never sort of just like, by the way, it's all, it's all mindset, but I, I right. certainly, I, you know, there is often the bridge of the conversation where we kind of talk about one's thoughts and the way one views a situation or a context or their past and how maybe those thoughts might be modifiable or might be, might differ between people and therefore perhaps theirs could be modified. I think for some people, it really, it makes, it's quite intuitive and people are like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. And that makes sense why, you know, my, my spouse or my mother or what have you has always said, you know, you need to change your attitude or your mindset. But it can it can be difficult to hear for sure. It's not a it's not an easy thing to change, and it's not you know like you say it's not a magical pill that they can just take and suddenly they'll feel better. You know, it requires a lot of work and a lot of introspection, which is is challenging. I'm just still loving the fact that this is all <laughs> coming to mindset. I've I've personally been been spending a lot of time thinking about my mindset. I mean, I, I graduated from an undergraduate degree a couple of years ago. Tried a year of graduate school just so you know, and I ended up withdrawing point is this is a transitional period in my life and so I feel like just even just talking to you and figuring these things out for myself hopefully can allow the listeners you who are listening right now to maybe gather something for yourself and you know have some great takeaways oh that's awesome I love it it's coming full circle <laughs> it's 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 coming full circle we're we're covering absolutely everything so in your introduction you mentioned mentioned heterogeneity and trajectories this is this is basically touching on the fact that there really is no one place that we look right yeah, yeah. And how I describe, for example, those three groups of patterns. So, yeah. you know, it's longitudinal research. So I surveyed people over time for over a year um, after their graduation. And some longitudinal research these days tends to kind of focus on kind of the average trajectory. So on average, we would see probably like the bulk of my sample, the 60% that are doing kind of stable, not having much change in their well-being. 
the average trend would sort of pick up on them. And we might not learn that much from them, but this idea is that the, the heterogeneity, it's, it's sort of like the, the technical term at the risk of sounding too scientific is, is mixture modeling. And the way I like to think of it is you think about your data over time as a big mixture. So if we think about like a soup as a mixture, within the soup, there's water, there might be some vegetables, there might be some dairy. So there's three different types of mixtures within this broader mixture. Um, and the idea being that patterns within a coherent total pattern, there are differences essentially, and there's different patterns over time, even within a big homogenous sample of students in the same age group at the same time in their life course. So sometimes you can need to kind of like dive in deeper to actually see those those fluctuations because the average might be misleading. This reminds me of this this classic example of if a farmer has the same number of cows as they do chickens on their farm, the average farm animal on that farm has three legs. <laughs> yes, I mean I, I don't want to I don't want to poo poo all of the research that does look at average patterns. And average patterns are really important, right? When we think about psychology because. Psychology is so diverse. Like humans, we are just no one, no human is alike, right? In our mental right. health. So, you know, it's important to know the average so that we can make kind of snap decisions. And you say, on average, someone in this context might respond like this. But yeah, like <laughs> to your example, considering maybe there are different types of individuals within the broader group is important too. Yeah, I just I just wanted to kind of maybe touch on the fact that the average can sometimes ignore the extremes. Exactly. Right? So yeah. if half the population, half of a given population is experiencing extreme anxiety and half is experiencing no anxiety whatsoever, we might conclude that on average people experience some anxiety when in reality that doesn't really map onto the actual population. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Got to consider those extremes. And I mean, I, I do, I say that with biting my tongue a little bit, thinking about my like first year grad school stats prof, um, where we think about, you know, extremes, we have to make sure that they're actually real data. They're not just just kind of flukes in the data, let's say. And so that's something that I have to always add a caveat to the, like, the type of analyses that I do. You want to make sure you're getting true score, not like error, but at the same time balance that with also not just kind of lumping everyone into the same group in a one-size-fits-all approach. Mm -hmm. So you said given that you were doing longitudinal studies, these would be kind of on the order of a year. Your PhD presumably lasted three to four years. How many different studies were you able to carry out throughout that time? Yeah, so so what I did, and I collaborated with another grad student in my lab, Kate Mulvihill, what we did is we ran the graduation study. So we collected data only from one study, but we basically did different analyses across the same data set. But what we did is we collected people, I believe we first started collecting data in my first year of my PhD, right before people had started to graduate, and we followed them at three subsequent time points over the year afterwards. Yeah, I suppose that answers your question. We, we, we really kind of only sampled the same people, but we use different statistical analyses to answer different questions, I guess. There's one thing I'd like to address, especially this is something that came up a lot in my master's, especially psychology research. We tend to use psychology students because they're most accessible. How heterogeneous was your sample? Was it mostly psychology students or did you get samplings from different kinds of programs? Yeah, yeah, that was definitely a huge thing we wanted to make sure we didn't want it to get just exclusively psych students. So we had a lot of success, I should say, and I just put this out there to any future grad students who are looking at student samples. So we did a lot of email broadcasts to different departments within Concordia. So we ended up catching a fair number of students in the College of the Business, the JMSB School, Engineering, 
some in this, this natural sciences, but a, a fair number also in social sciences. By nature, I think psychology students just probably heard about our study more, and there, there was a good chunk of them. I'd say probably, probably about 20%. Yeah, I mean, I think our sample can always be more diverse, and, and depending on how you conceptualize diversity, I mean, there, there are definitely gaps. And so, you know, the results are certainly should be interpreted with caution within the particular milieu that it was collected in. But in comparison to other studies in our lab, we felt like pretty proud that we weren't just, it wasn't 50% psychology students. Right. Absolutely. That's uh, that's just the reason why I wanted to ask because, you know, just because let's say the environment of a psychology student will be very similar. You know. Totally. And, and maybe perhaps they're a little bit more psychologically minded or a little yeah. bit more aware of kind of how to check off their symptomatology than the average folks. So yeah, yeah, there's definitely some bias when, when that happens, for sure. And now a word from our sponsors. Yeah, we don't have any sponsors yet. So if you're interested in sponsoring this podcast, Abstract, colon, The Future of Science, whether you are a university or research institute or any organization looking to support the show, please reach out to us over email at abstractcast at gmail.com. If you don't have the means to support us financially and you're just a dedicated listener, drop us a line at the same email. We'd be so happy to hear from you and get some of your feedback on the podcast so far. That's all from me for now. Let's head back to the episode. Great. So this was, of course, all PhD work. And now, as you mentioned, you're, you're more in a clinical role, but you also didn't say that you're working with veterans and members of the armed forces. Yeah. Also people who are in their mid to late 20s, like people who just you know, <laughs> had a very short-lived uh, military career? Not, not necessarily. I, I'd say there are some, certainly some young adults. And I should say, like my clinical work throughout grad school wasn't exclusively with young adults or adolescents. Yeah. did a little bit of that. Um, and I do enjoy working with young adults, but I also enjoy just working with adults in general. So no, it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a different context. Although I do see parallels between my my work with veterans, for example, and my research. Do you want me to speak to those? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Be happy to. Yeah. So the clinic that I'm working in is funded by Veteran Affairs Canada, and the idea is that we we catch folks who are coming out of the military or the RCMP who have a, a mental health condition as a result of their work, and often we will catch people as they're released from the military. And what, what I find really interesting about that is it's really a developmental transition in some way from going from a very structured kind of military context um, where, you know, all of their friends and their everyone around them is within this culture and then going to civilian life. And so that's really a, I mean, it's not just like graduating from undergrad, but it, it's a transition nevertheless. And I find it really fascinating to kind of apply what I've learned in my dissertation work considering a lot about, you know, it's really the, 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 how one views the transition, this kind of mind, mindset aspects, and they come very much at play in my clinical work with this population. So. I could definitely see that overlap, though. Just as you started describing this transition, immediately the first thing that popped into my head was, oh, yeah, transitioning out of, out of university. You get very cozy, even if it's stressful, even if it's tough. We almost get this like um, Stockholm syndrome with university because we're so used to just oh every semester I pick my courses I, I go to class I got my homework my assignments but real life doesn't hand you that same kind of structure. Totally, yeah. That that was always kind of one of the the things that sparked this research interest for me. I was like, it is a very unique context, you know, to live in a university. I mean, it, it depends on the university, it depends on the city. I know when I went to undergrad though, like most people lived near campus and you 
kind of you just spent your day on campus at the library or with your friends all doing the same thing you don't maybe you have a job but it's not a full-time job especially if you're lucky and, and and it's just a strange unique as you say sometimes cozy sometimes very hard very stressful very alienating for some students but nevertheless unique like those four or five years unless you go back to school will never be like the rest of your adult life yeah i'm curious to know what you think about the implication of uncertainty in all this the, the uncertainty of transition, like, has that, has that come up in discussion or research? Yeah, well, I think that's inherent to the question, right, is, is this idea of a transition is uncertain. We just don't know what's coming next. And often, I think for folks, it feels like you're really destabilized, like all of the coping tools and everything you've learned to kind of keep your life in line may or may not apply in your next chapter of your life. And actually, interestingly, like a lot of my findings about this aspect of it's your mindset and your personality and how you view things being so important for that transition. And that that actually dates back to sort of some Caspian Moffat, like these very sort of seminal personality researchers, where they said personality is the only thing you have. It's your internal compass. It's your internal guide. So when the world is uncertain, when the next few chapters of your life are uncertain, it's what you lean back on. You know, you don't necessarily lean back on maybe your social context or your how much money you have in your pocket or, you know, the, the way you lived your life. Ultimately, it all comes down to you and how you view things. And it's the most reliable source of information for you. So, yeah, I think I think it, it all kind of marries nicely together and kind of consistent with past theory, but also just this idea that uncertainty is challenging, but if you can rely on your um, internal tendency to ha- how you view things, that's that's what will predict, I suppose, how you how you navigate that uncertainty. And when you sit down with people, whether they are you know just graduating from university, whether they're coming out of the armed forces, is there something that almost a stock question that you particularly like to ask that maybe you've developed, not necessarily from a textbook, but something that, that has become your favorite question to ask? I mean, that's a great question. Maybe consistent somewhat with my dissertation and just trying to understand people and what what helps people. I always just like to ask people like how they see, you know, their mental health problems. Like how do they make sense of it? How do they think, you know, this came to be? Or how do they think that, why are they like this, you know, in their opinion? I just kind of like to get people's opinion. And I think it's, I mean, it's clinically, it's just a really important way to kind of get your client's perspective. You know, like, I don't want to be treated like I'm the expert in them. They're the expert in them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, tell me, I get people, I like people to tell me their story, but also their explanation of how they got there. I like that you said that people are their own expert, because yeah. I also agree with that. But I, I get the sense that people actually don't feel that way about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's a, it's a kind of an arresting statement, isn't it? Um, especially if you're feeling kind of lost and maybe, you know, you have some mental health problems, you kind of are like, uh, if I'm the expert then I'm failing at it. <laughs> yeah. Like I don't know and I'm supposed to know, so then you won't know. So then no one can help me. Yeah. Yeah. No. That, and that's a really, really good point actually. And I think that's something I have to be really sensitive to when I do ask that type of question you know, if people kind of say, ah, uh-huh, like, I don't know, what, I'm not the expert. I mean, that tells me a lot, right? Like that tells me that maybe they aren't, they haven't, you know, thought about that before. And, and maybe then I kind of lean in and say, well, that's, this is our job. Like, let's try and figure that out together. But yeah, it can be a bit of an intimidating question, I suppose, too. So what kind of treatments do you generally administer with these kinds of populations? Is there a specific subset? You could maybe talk a bit about CBT or anything else that you work with. What are kind of like the big, big hitters? 
Yeah, I, I definitely am a CBT therapist, something that I think Concordia gave me a great education in. And I think it's just a really intuitive model, but it's also really well supported in research. So, and, and sorry, just uh, what's, what is CBT just for the listeners? Sorry, yeah. So it's cognitive behavioral therapy. And the idea behind, I'll call it CBT, is that there are lots of determinants of how we feel and, and our, our mental health, but ones that we can really change are our cognitions, which is a fancy word for our thoughts or how we think, or we could call it mindset, and also our behavior. So what we do. So again, cognitive behavioral therapy. And I mean, I tend to lean a little bit more on the cognitive side. So different CBT therapists tend to have like their preference in some way. But the idea being that our, our answers behind psychopathology or mental health tend to look at yeah how, how we perceive situations and how we think about situations. And all of our thoughts are valid. Not to say that like people have wrong thoughts and we need to correct them. It's just that people might have developed thoughts, let's say, from their upbringing or their developmental or their just life experiences that may have been adaptive, but maybe are less adaptive in certain contexts. So it's about kind of kind of questioning that together and trying to find a solution. Are you trying to kind of unite the cognitive and the behavioral? Is there a specific directionality here, like where you need to work towards having your cognitive govern your behaviors or well, the other way around? Like they're, they're what's the relationship? They're bidirectional. So, you know, you might think something and therefore you, you behave accordingly. And then as you behave in a certain way, it might change how you think. I'm trying to think of like a really good example. You know, let's just say for someone maybe who's a bit socially anxious, you might think, gee, you know, no, my friends don't like me. So your behavior then might be, I'm going to pull away and kind of avoid my friends. And the more one pulls away and kind of isolates a little bit, then their friends stop texting them. And then it reinforces their thought, oh yeah, wow, people don't like me. And so it's kind of about putting that all out on the table and mapping that out with a client and realizing, huh, this is interesting. And it's fascinating how the two feed into one another and then it's about sort of dismantling that. And that might mean let's change your behavior. So instead of hiding out, why don't you go hang out with a friend or go for coffee with somebody? And then they realize, oh, maybe the friend wasn't so, so unkind to me. And then that changes your thought that, okay, maybe not everyone hates me, maybe just a few and so forth. But over time, hopefully you might get some corrective experiences um, that might change how you think. And ultimately, the more you change your, what you do and what you, how you think, the better you feel. So... That's a really simplistic uh, way sure. of presenting it, I should say, for anyone listening. It's not just that easy, obviously, right. but... Um, you wouldn't, you yeah. wouldn't be employed if it was. You're <laughs> yeah. just giving away all your secrets today. There are, well some, as... great, there are some great CBT self-help books out there, I should say, but I just don't want to, you know, I don't mean to simplify people's distress. It's not just like A, B, C, and done. Um, for sure. I like that you kind of tied it back to mindset a little bit with this idea of, you know, cognition, but it also points to the fact that like you, you aren't a closed system, right? When you change your mindset, that will change the way that you behave and the way you, you act and react to other people. Yes. So that will then kind of have this domino effect of, of changing your relationships, hopefully for the positive. So yeah. this mindset thing really, it's, it's very salient for me. Yeah. And it's not, I should say your mindset isn't um, kind of just within you. You get your mindset from somewhere too, right? Like you've learned it probably based on past experiences or, you know, genetics, what have you, but it's not just this, like you're born this way and you think this way. And that's just, it's kind of to get philosophical with you. Like it's not just this sort of separate entity. It's very permeable based on your life experiences. So you're not a dualist. Like mind is not separate from body. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm going to stay away from that can of worms. Okay, perfect. Yeah, we're not going to go there. Neither of us has enough of a background in philosophy to actually sustain that conversation. Exactly. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to fool myself, I think. But. I have, I have one last question that this has been really, really fascinating and lovely to chat with you this morning. So my question is, you have a thousand people listening to you right now. What do you tell them? Oh, well, I'm terribly indecisive. So that's a tough question. Um, I would say, I suppose, I mean, I think, you know, we've repeated the word mindset like a hundred times already, but I think ultimately, depending on why, why you're listening, whether you're just curious or, you know, you're looking for answers yourself, just to, you know, take some time to reflect on your own mindset and how it comes to play in all your day-to-day interactions. I mean, even just I was thinking the other day, I stubbed my toe and my mindset was instantly rage. And I, well, that's an emotion, but I, I had a thought about, you know, gosh, darn it, blah, blah, blah. And it's just really interesting. I sort of paused on that moment and reflected on like, you know, if I had thought differently, would I have had that same emotional response and so forth? Yeah, just take some time. It's, you don't have to change it either. I think mindfulness is really about just being aware of your mindset and not, not judging it or acting as impulsively on it, just letting it be. And I think that that's a great lesson for everyone, especially, you know, the context that we're living in today. It's a lot of stress out there. So just to be reflective of how, how you're doing. Perfect. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> so thanks again, Sarah, for coming on the show. This has, been, this has been awesome. I'm really happy for you that you got yourself a clinical physician out of your PhD. It's lovely. Best Thank of luck you. with everything and have a great rest of the day. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. You too. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.